Welcome to Truth to Power here on Forward Radio, where we gather around the microphones for conversations you won't hear anywhere else on the dial. I'm your host, Hart Hagen, and today's guest is Canadian filmmaker Julia Barnes, writer, director, and producer of Bright Green Lies, how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it. If you have any questions or feedback, please email wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. I'm excited to introduce you to award-winning filmmaker Julia Barnes. Julia is writer, director, and producer of the movie Bright Green Lies. Bright Green Lies investigates the change in focus of the mainstream environmental movement from its original concern with protecting nature to its current obsession with powering an unsustainable way of life. The film exposes the lies and fantastical thinking behind the notion that solar, wind, hydro, biomass, or green consumerism will save the planet. Let's first see a trailer of the movie Bright Green Lies and then we'll talk with Julia Barnes. We're in the midst of a sixth major extinction of life on this planet. Paper or plastic is really not the question at this point. It's life versus a bare rock. High voltage, keep out authorized personnel. What's going on back here? This movement that was so honorable and so impassioned has turned into something completely different. It's all become, how do we continue to fuel this destruction? There is a push for a 100% renewable world. What they don't talk about are the unseen harms caused by these technologies. You may not directly be seeing any smoke come out of any smokestacks, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Companies are involved in these activities to make money. They're not trying to displace or change other things. What they're actually talking about is sustaining high-energy ways of life at the expense of the natural world. I'm not comfortable with an industry that deceives me about something as important as climate change. They claim it is good for the environment when actually it is harmful for the environment. Okay, so that was the, that was the official trailer of Bright Green Lies. Julia Barnes is the director, writer, producer of Bright Green Lies. Julia, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. What got you interested in this project? So I um, became a filmmaker when I was 16 years old. I had just watched a documentary about some of the big issues facing life on the planet and um, got very inspired and decided to make a documentary. So between the age of 16 and uh, 20, I was making a film all about the big issues facing the ocean. So I was going around and diving in different places, interviewing a whole bunch of experts and, um, you know, learning as much as I could about what was happening uh, to the oceans and to the natural world in general. And at the same time, I was very much um, involved in the, the mainstream environmental movement and going out to all of these huge uh, climate protests that were going on and, um, you know, being exposed to the kind of rhetoric around these things. And I, I always felt kind of a, a sense of um, 
disconnect when it came to um, my understanding of, of the scale of the problems and the causes of the problems and the kind of very uh, surface level solutions that were often being put forward um, and the kinds of changes that people were talking about that we needed really did not seem commensurate um, with the scale of the problem in a lot of cases. And I think, um, you know, for me, it was all about nature. It was all about uh, caring about the, the non-human species who are, um, you know, being wiped out as a result of this crazy way of life that we have right now that is just so out of touch with reality. And, you know, I would go to these protests and, and in one sense, it's very inspiring to see hundreds of thousands of people who care a lot about what's happening. Um, but at the same time, it felt like a lot of the concern was not actually about nature, but it was more focused on how does th how do things affect humans, and it was very anthropocentric. Um, yeah, all of the rhetoric kind of kind of seemed hyper focused on climate as being the issue, but also um, very much focused on humans as being like the primary victims of this somehow, which which just didn't seem to align with reality. Um, so towards the end of making that documentary, Sea of Life, I was at a uh, climate sit-in in Ottawa. And there were a bunch of people, you know, carrying solar panels to the, to the offices of, the, um, of, of Justin Trudeau, who had just gotten in. And um, so I was doing some filming there and I was interviewing activists. It was a four day long sit-in, so kind of nothing else to do. You know, I just talked to everyone who's there. And one of the people said that that the reason he had become an activist is he was inspired by the work of Derek Jensen. And I had never heard of Derek before. So when I got home, I looked him up and I watched his endgame talk and felt very much like, you know, his his voice and his perspective, um, his analysis of the situation was what I had been looking for the entire time. Like it just seemed um so much more honest and, and and unflinching than than most of um you know the people that 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 we were hearing from in in the mainstream of, of environmentalism so uh i set up an interview with him and, and he was like the last person i interviewed for sea of life and went to crescent city and spent like three hours talking with him this was the longest interview i ever did and um you know, during that, he mentioned that he was working on on the book Bright Green Lies, and told me about some of the the statistics and the information about how destructive so many of the things that are being promoted as solutions um, to our environmental problems actually are. And I realized that that was probably the most important thing I could make another documentary about, because we do have this massive, you know, amount of people who who care about the issues that are facing the natural world but there's so much confusion and uh, just, just lies that are going on about, about what the solutions are, about what's good for the planet and what isn't. And um, you know, th this movement cannot be effective if we're putting our energies into promoting things that aren't going to help the planet and that are only gonna make things worse. So yeah, I wanted to make a documentary about Bright Green Lies and that pretty much started um, right after Sea of Life was finished. You have in the beginning of the movie, you you're narrating and you have this quote that I want to read and I would like for you to respond. You say people rarely question the solutions they are taught to embrace 
But with all the world at stake, we must start asking the right questions. There's a push for 100% renewable world. And after the research I've done for this documentary, I want no part of it. I did not become an environmentalist to protect my way of life or the civilization in which I live. I became an environmentalist because I am in love with life on this planet and because the life I love is under assault. This film is for those whose allegiance is with the living world, those who do what, who would do whatever it takes to defend it and protecting it from those who would destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> like, what can you add to that? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It sums it up. Um, yeah, kind of just, just put everything the, in, the, a, in the start of the first five minutes. So in, in context, what you're saying here is that renewable energy, so-called renewable energy is part of the industrial systems that are assaulting the life that you love. Can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think so many of the things that have been put forward as, um, as solutions to our environmental problems are just more of the same. It's um, more industry, more extraction, uh, completely, I mean, things that they call renewables like solar panels and wind turbines, they're made of finite materials that have to be extracted from somewhere. And that place was home to um, some humans or non-human people who lived there and, and you know that place is gonna be destroyed in order to extract and make these things. And so, you know, what we see in this push for, for a mass production of all of these new technological gadgets is that this is not something that helps the natural world. This is more harm to the natural world. This is an expansion of mining, an expansion of a lot of the things that, you know, environmentalists, if they saw it, I think would naturally be against it. I mean, these are horrible, um, you know, destructive scars on the landscape. And it's being done for what? To produce industrial electricity, you know, to power the very system, the very, um, you know, gluttonous way of life that is destroying life on the planet. It just doesn't make sense on so many levels. And it certainly doesn't make sense even on the level of climate, which is what these things are being promoted as, as helping, as being a solution to. Um, we're not seeing that happening in the real world. Uh, we're not seeing that, that the energy that is being produced from solar panels or wind turbines or hydro or biomass or any of these things that are called you know, green energy is leading to any less global production or consumption of fossil fuels because we live in an economy that is constantly growing and society keeps finding new uses for this energy. Um, it's just it's just taking and kind of eating up anything that you can throw at it. Um, so there's there's really there's been this um, this assumption that these things will displace fossil fuels on a one-to-one -one basis. And it's the thing is really important for people to understand like that is not what's happening in the system that we have, but that's, that's not how it works. In that regard, you interviewed Richard York, who has been studying displacement. When you have a new energy generation technology, you expect that that displaces the old energy generation technologies. And it turns out that that's not so true, right? 
Yeah, Richard York is the one who who coined the term the displacement paradox, which kind of describes exactly this situation. And he looked at the data, um, not just current, but kind of going back through the whole history of energy usage. So like, you know, people originally maybe burning wood for energy and then say you add coal. And what you find is that these things tend to stack on top of each other, that each time a new energy source is brought online, it's not like you see like this this huge decrease in a, in a previous source of energy that was being used. You just see it's it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And so the graph kind of just goes like that. And, and, and you know, each one is kind of growing and expanding as new ones are being added. Um, so yeah, it's really contradictory to to the, the the rhetoric that we hear about about how these technologies would work supposedly to displace other things. Um, that that's not what's happened historically, and that's not what's happening now with the addition of energy from solar panels or wind turbines to the grid. Well, let's talk about solar, for example. Uh, when you see a solar panel, it looks so bright and clean. It seems that once the solar panel is made, you put it on your roof, then it generates electricity without having to burn coal. What's not to like about that? Right, and I think the reason that that solar panels and that a lot of these technologies have been able to um, have this green image and the reason that the companies that market these things have gotten away with saying that these are environmentally friendly is because most people who are purchasing a solar panel or seeing an installation of solar panels, they're not, they don't live in Baotu, China, next to the rare earth mine that is this horrible wasteland where nothing can live that you know was required to make that solar panel. Um, people don't see the supply lines, they don't see the extraction sites all over the world for all of the various components that went into making these things. And I think if people really understood um, what goes into a solar panel, there's no way we could call it green or environmentally friendly. Um, it, it just does not, it, it doesn't look that way. Um, but but it, the, the reason they get away with it is because people are so disconnected from that process. So Baotu, China is the site of a massive open pit mine, right? Well, mm -hmm. what else can you tell us about that? It's an, the mine is an area that's like 19 square miles, a huge tailing pond, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's, so it's, it's where they get a lot of the rare earth minerals that go into these technologies. And um, yeah, it's a toxic wasteland. I mean, there have been articles about it. People have gone there and, and there's some footage of it in the film. Like, and you can just see this like black sludge coming out of a, a pipe into you know this giant lake of more black sludge and um yeah all of the wildlife there has been you know wiped out like nothing can live there um and that's a sacrifice zone you know naomi klein in her book which book was it uh, talks about sacrifice zones um the shock doctrine i think is the book where she brings up that term or and it's nimby like not in my backyard uh, but what goes, what happens in China stays in China. You know, we don't see what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so and, and there's sacrifice zones all over the planet in the name of green technology. Right, and mining is only expected to increase. 
you know, mining requires fossil fuels. Mining is destructive in its own right, uh, destructive of habitat, causes water pollution, and whatever you're mining. And you have to mine a lot of different things to make any form of technology, including a solar panel or a wind turbine. So uh, let's talk about wind. When you see a windmill, you say, okay, the wind is blowing on the windmill. The wind is turning a turbine. So instead of coal turning the turbine, you've got wind turning the turbine. I don't see any smoke coming out of it. What could be wrong with this? Right. So there's a lot of, um, you know, obviously wind turbines are these usually very large um, machines. And so there's a lot of steel and copper and concrete and plastic that goes into making them. Um, so you follow the supply lines for any of those processes and, you know, it is not a nice thing. I live quite near um, a place where they, they process uh, and manufacture steel products. And uh, you can smell sometimes if the air is go that goes the wrong way, if it shifts, you can even from here, you can smell the uh, the pollution from that. It is not a pleasant thing. Um, and, you know, that's just one point along the production of this one component um, in the process. Um, so there's there's the what are they made of side of things. There's also the fact that they have to pour very large uh, concrete uh, bases for them which is a, a big emitter of CO2 actually is concrete. Um, but then as they're operating, uh, there's the direct harm to things like birds and bats and um, incredible numbers. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's mentioned in the film um, that are struck by wind turbines. And uh, creatures don't even have to be struck directly by by a turbine as it spins because when wind turbines are spinning, they create a pressure differential in the air, and it can actually cause like bats' lungs to explode just if they're flying in the area because of the pre pressure differential, um, which is pretty horrific. And you know, a lot of times when when you talk about wind turbines and the effects on birds or bats, people will say. Um, you know, buildings are really bad for birds or cats are really bad for birds. Uh, the thing about wind turbines is, I mean, this is just an addition on top of buildings. It's not like, um, it's not like it's buildings or wind turbines. This is just an additional thing. Um, but the other thing is wind turbines uh, harm more, more birds that are like uh, the larger birds of prey. So bald eagles, golden eagles, and things like that, which are not the ones that are running into skyscrapers. Um, you know, it's kind of a different thing. Right. Let's talk about biomass. So biomass is a word for generating energy from mainly burning trees. Uh, you, you cut down a tree, you burn it for fuel, the tree grows back. Isn't this renewable? How else are we going to get our fuel? Biomass is... Biomass is one of the big, um, you know, deceptive industries because they are counting biomass as carbon neutral and oftentimes lying to the people who are consuming it, saying that it comes from wood waste when in fact it comes from clear cutting whole forests. Um, I've walked in the clear cuts that were made to produce biomass. They're, they're going into, you know, forests all over the US um, and elsewhere. Um, 
and extracting trees and oftentimes shipping them across the ocean in big tankers to Europe where it's then burned in, in biomass facilities and is counted as carbon neutral. The thing about biomass, when it gets burned, it um, releases typically more carbon dioxide per unit of energy than coal, than a coal-fired power plant does. Um, so it, it is not in any way good for the climate. It is very destructive to the climate. Um, there's a lot of fraudulent accounting that goes into, um, you know, calling it green or carbon neutral. Um, one of the big problems is that they, they don't count the emissions that come from burning it because they're assuming that the forest will regrow and then that will somehow make up for it. So they're, they're releasing carbon dioxide now, huge amounts of carbon dioxide from the forest that they've cut down. And they're assuming that in you know, 20, 30, 50 years that that's gonna come back and somehow that makes it carbon neutral right now. Mm -hmm. and that is just completely fraudulent. Um, but the other thing is they're not counting the emissions that come from the logging. They're not counting the emissions. Like when you go in and clear cut a forest, um, there's compaction of the soil, the soil degrades um, and it starts releasing large amounts of CO2. But then there's also the fact that these trees that you've cut down, that were maybe 20 or, or 30 or 50 or 100 years old, um, you know, large trees sequester larger amounts of carbon and say if you go in and replant that with a whole bunch of little tiny saplings, that sapling is not sequestering anywhere near the amount of carbon that an intact forest would have been sequestering. But there's also kind of a, a whole myth around forestry and the idea that you can just keep taking from forests and they can keep growing back. There are no forests that have survived more than three rounds of clear cuts. And the reason is because every time you cut down trees and take them out and remove them from the forest, you are permanently removing nutrients from that ecosystem, that natural community. Those nutrients aren't coming back. They are being exported out of the area. So normally everything would stay within the system and you know a tree would fall down and it would decay and it would become part of the soil and mm -hmm. be eaten by various organisms and all of that nutrients would remain in the community, it would remain intact. Um, you remove that nutrients and you know it's gone and the forest can't use that to, to keep regrowing and to keep um, you know maintaining itself the way that it should. I mean, you're also wiping out you know, the, the animals who live there and, and, you know, huge destruction, obviously, to the natural community anytime you go in and, and clear cut. Um, so Plus, in a, in a, in an old, the older the forest, uh, the more carbon rich the soils are going to be. So mm -hmm. when you take an old forest and all of a sudden wipe the slate clean, that carbon comes out because the trees are gone also because the roads like you say so you know and and we're not counting the carbon that comes out of the soil we're not counting the carbon that comes out of the smokestack when you yeah. burn the, the the little wood pellets that you shipped all the way to europe mm -hmm. yeah so biomass is a complete disaster for the natural world and it should in no way be considered a renewable green form of energy, um, but it is, which is an atrocity. So, and yet in a lot of the rhetoric, it's like Germany has this renewable energy miracle going on. They make it sound like it's solar and wind when really it's biomass and hydro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the majority of it comes from biomass and hydro, yeah. Well, let's talk about hydro. Okay. 
Yeah, hydro is another one of these that, that has a, a green image and is often counted as a zero carbon form of energy. Um, but we know actually that hydro, um, you know, large dams can release very large amounts of greenhouse gases. Um, a lot of it is methane, um, but it's usually like CO2 equivalent of, again, like biomass, more than a coal-fired power plant. So the reason that, um, that hydro releases so much carbon is because dams involve the continual um, rising and falling of water levels. Um, and when an area uh, at the edges gets inundated with water, the plants that were growing there start to deco decompose um, anaerobically, which produces a lot of methane. And then, so as, as the water level is continually fluctuating, you, you kind of have this cycle of, of the buildup and the production of methane. Um, so it's, it's very um, greenhouse gas intensive on top of the fact that dams cause direct harm to rivers and uh, the fish who need to swim upriver to um, spawn can no longer do so. It changes the water temperature, um, which affects a whole bunch of different species. Uh, yeah, dams are just really harmful for rivers. So let's talk about uh, cars. You're doing a, your next film is going to be on Thacker Pass in Nevada. And the reason for Thacker Pass is to mine lithium. Lithium is going to be used for many different battery applications, but the majority of it uh, promises to be for electric cars. So, you know, you take an internal combustion engine out, you put an electric motor in, um, what's, you know, you don't have any tail, any exhaust coming out of the tailpipe. What's not to like about that? So the process for making electric cars, just like any of these other technologies, yeah, it involves a lot of mining and particularly um, right now it's being used are lithium batteries. And so, if you look at the site where lithium is mined, you know, currently in other parts of the world, in Bolivia or Chile or Tibet, um, you see huge destruction to the natural environment and oftentimes local opposition to this, like the indigenous people are saying, we don't want this. Um, there have been some uh, successful, you know, opposition to certain mining projects because um, people really don't want these going in. I mean, these are usually places where, um, there's not a lot of water to begin with, and this is something that's gonna take water. It's gonna um, pollute the, the water table. Um, it's just, it's a disaster for the local environment where, where the lithium extraction is happening. Um, but now they're looking at putting in a lot of lithium mines in Nevada and, you know, you know environmentalists, you look at something like a open pit uh, coal mine and you see like, it looks very destructive. Um, you know, and people are rightfully against that, but an open pit lithium mine in Nevada is not going to look very different than an open pit coal mine. I mean, they're, they're going to go in and destroy, um, in Thacker Pass, for example, this area that is a really beautiful, pristine desert habitat that is home to some species who are threatened and endangered and some who live nowhere else on earth who will be wiped out because of this project. Um, and it's all to build, you know, single person vehicles for the most part to, to make batteries for 
these luxury items that are electric vehicles so that people can, you know, zip around and, and travel places faster um, and feel good about themselves and feel like it's good for the planet. Um, but, you know, the majority of emissions that go into making a car, or at least a very large portion of the emissions that go into making a car, um, are, are in the manufacturing. I mean, I shouldn't say they go into the majority of emissions that come from a vehicle are from the manufacturing stage. A large portion of them come from the manufacturing. So, you know, we see very visually what comes out the tailpipe and obviously that's a problem. And I'm not advocating for the continued use of, of uh, combustion vehicles. Um, but what most people don't see is that there's, there's a huge chunk of emissions that goes into manufacturing a vehicle and that's there, whether it's an electric vehicle or a gas powered vehicle. So I don't think that we should look at an electric car and say that this is zero emissions. Um, there were a lot of emissions that went into making that car. And there were a lot of harms that come with making the batteries for those cars. And on top of that, um, emissions are not the only problems with cars. Roads fragment habitats, cars um, hit a lot of vertebrate and invertebrate animals. Um, and microplastics, actually microplastics from car tires are one of the leading causes of microplastic pollution in the ocean, is the erosion of car tires as they drive. Um, so there's, there's a whole host of problems that come with cars and, and we can't you know, just, just slap a, a battery in there and suddenly make cars okay. They're still very much not a good thing for this planet. Reaching with wire. <laughs>
um, and the big threats to coral reefs from ocean acidification and coral bleaching, and also industrial fishing um, and some other things. So the ocean was was a big um, focus for me. I mean, it's it's the largest um, part of our planet, and it, it's really key for keeping the planet um, livable for 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 all of us on land. I mean, we depend on the ocean, um, and that's where most life is. So yeah, I was really drawn to the ocean, and and one of the most uh, shocking and horrific things to learn when I was making bright green lies is that there are now plans to mine the deep sea in order to extract some of the components that go into batteries for electric vehicles or for energy storage for things like solar and wind. So this is kind of being touted as a green green form of mining as you know the companies that are doing this are kind of putting themselves out there as eco heroes and saying that we need to mine the deep sea in order to save the planet. Um, deep sea mining would be an absolute disaster for for the ocean for the natural world in general um it is one of the worst things that i can think of so describe have, the vehicles the vessels that this is proposed this is not quite has not quite happened yet and in, in all likelihood it will happen in, in all likelihood if we had to bet on it this will happen very soon so describe the the, the vessel that is used to do the mining and, and, and go from there. Right, they haven't started deep sea mining yet. They're planning to potentially begin in 2024, which is pretty soon coming up. And their plan is to deploy these things that have been described as house-sized machines. So they would be 40 feet by, tw by 20 feet by 16 feet. So just absolutely enormous machines that they would, um, drop from a ship on the surface down to the sea floor about 4,000 meters deep. And they would have these machines crawling along the seabed and extracting the materials that are down there. What they're going after are these things called polymetallic nodules. They're rock-like formations in the deep sea that um, contain things like copper, nickel, cobalt, and manganese, things that they might like to use in batteries. So their plan is to extract these things, um, probably crush the materials a bit at depth and then send this kind of slurry of like crushed material and, and debris and whatever else they pick up, sediment, uh, back up through pipes to the mining vessel on the sea surface. And on that vessel, there would be some initial processing and then they would be left with a lot of wastewater. Um, a lot of sediment, a lot of things that they're they're not interested in keeping. So there are some estimates that each mining vessel would produce two to six million cubic feet of sediment per day. Um, to give you a sense of the scale, let, of that, let's let, let that sink in. And uh, two to six million cubic feet per day for per one vessel. vessel. Yeah, per and mining vessel. Yeah, and there are multiple of these mining operations being planned to be going on at the same time. Um, and that's equivalent to 22,000 dump trucks full of, of sediment being dumped into the ocean every day because they're not gonna keep this. They're probably not gonna um, put it on a, a, a ship and send it to land. There's like one company that had proposed doing that, but most of them are proposing to pump this 
slurry back down into the ocean to some depth that they haven't quite decided on yet. Well, um, the ocean's big. It, it can absorb all that. <laughs> yeah. So they, it, it could absorb it and it could be a disaster for the life in the ocean. Uh, so yeah. um, the, this fine particulate matter that comes from the sediments um, can get into the gills of fish as they're, they're breathing and it can damage their respiratory system. There are so many um, species that migrate and that swim through the area that they're planning on mining. The area that they're planning on mining is called the Clarion Clifferton Zone. It is located between Hawaii and Mexico. And if all the mines for that area go ahead, it would be the largest contiguous mining area on the planet. Um, it would be as wide as the continental United States. It's just absolutely enormous mine. And you know, when you picture the sediment from, from all of these different mines just being discharged on a continual basis into the ocean, um, it would, and then, and then you've got all these fish swimming through there. So there, there are, um, whale sharks, there are tuna, there are, um, you know, a lot of big fish. There's also sperm whales who migrate through that area, leatherback sea turtles, like just lots of different species. Um, the Clarion Clipperson Zone is quite near uh, something called the White Shark Cafe. It's where great white sharks go to hunt squid at depth. And, you know, all of these species could potentially be having to try to breathe through this just toxic load of. Um, particulate matter that's floating around in the ocean and it could wipe out a, a whole lot of fish. Um, but on top of that, having all of this sediment in the water, it changes the lighting conditions, it, it increases the turbidity, and that's going to affect the photosynthesis of plankton. You know, plankton produce most of the oxygen on our planet. Most of the oxygen that we breathe on land, that land animals breathe, comes from the ocean, comes from plankton in the ocean. And, you know, you do not want to mess with the, the photosynthesis of plankton, and potentially that could happen because of the steep sea mining. Um, yeah, it, 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 it would be a disaster on a level that I don't think we have, we have seen, um, you know, something come and disturb the ocean that much, that quickly. Um, a lot of people are saying like this could be the thing that pushes the ocean over into complete collapse. Mm -hmm. um, it's terrifying and we can't allow this to happen. Mm -hmm. So in the movie, Derek, Jen Derek Jensen is one of the three authors of the book, Derek Jensen, Lear Keith and Max Wilbert. Derek says this, you will have hundreds of thousands of people marching in in the streets of Washington or New York or Paris. And if you ask those individuals, why are you marching? They will say, we wanna save the planet. And if you ask them for their demands, they will say, we want subsidies for the solar and wind industry. That's extraordinary. I can't think of any time in history when a mass movement has been so completely captured and turned into lobbyists for an industry. It is extraordinary. Um, yeah, because so much of what has been going on, I mean, yeah, the kind of horrifying thing about all of this is that the people who show up to these marches, um, oftentimes it's young people, especially lately, who are very genuinely concerned about what's happening. And, and, you know, a lot of them do care a lot about the natural world and 
more about what's happening to the climate. And I, there's a big um, kind of disconnect between, I think, what the people who are marching actually want and then what the big organizations that are putting on these marches and that are making the lists of official demands are demanding on behalf of all of these passionate people. And so it kind of gets very much spun around in that, yeah, what is often being demanded is subsidies for a particular sector of the industrial economy that does not help the natural world and in fact increases the harm and increases the destruction to nature. Um, and you know, this can't work. Like having having protests and and making demands and having those demands be something that harms the natural world rather than helps it. This is not a way to have an effective environmental movement. Like we're not going to save the planet by continuing this way. Um, I think it would be great if all of these passionate people who, who are the ones who've been showing up to these protests could really take the movement back and make it again about protecting nature. Like let's make the demands that we stop the industries that are harming life on the planet, not that we funnel a bunch of money into new industries that are gonna do more harm to life on the planet. Right, so you're saying that just changing the way we generate energy doesn't really change the harms or the sources of the harms. Mm -hmm. It's it's solving for the wrong variable. Right. Um, it's it's taking as a given the way of life that we have right now, the levels of energy consumption that we have right now that are totally not sustainable and and you know not in any way in accordance with something that could be maintained in the long term. But it's taking that that we have to have that and that we have to keep that going and not just keep having this, but actually expand it and, and have even more energy consumption. And they talk about green growth a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's just pushing for this um, you know, technotopian kind of future world that that is out of touch with reality, that 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 cannot be in alignment with. Having having a healthy planet, having having a livable planet. Um, Let me read a, a quote from Lierre Keith, one of the other, one of the three writers of the book, who is featured in the film. She says, uh, "The environmental movement used to be a very impressed, impassioned group of people who cared very deeply about the places we loved and the creatures we loved." What happened, though, in my lifetime was that this movement, which was so honorable and impassioned, it turned into something completely different. And now it's about protecting a destructive way of life while it destroys the creatures and places we love. It's all become, how can we continue to fuel this destruction? As if the only problem was that, was that we were using oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's it it is about mostly been about um, being co-opted into being about changing the fuel source and and thinking that you know it's kind of like I picture um, you know I think I've seen comics comic strips like this it's like you've got you you slap a solar panel on your chainsaw and then you go out and and clear cut a forest and it's like you know having a solar powered chainsaw and doing a clear cut that doesn't make it green we're still right clear cutting the forest. And a lot of times that's that's kind of exactly what we're seeing in terms of this, this shift in environmentalism towards let's just power this same 
extractive and destructive system in a different way. And somehow that's supposed to solve all the problems and make it green. But it's it's the the problem is much more foundational. It is much deeper rooted than than just the fuel source. It's it's what we're powering that's actually caused the majority of the destruction. It's, it's these destructive things that we've been powering. And Max Wilbert is one of the authors and is featured in the movie. He says, the natural world isn't really part of the conversation anymore. Kumi Naidu, the former head of Greenpeace, I was watching him being interviewed the other day. He was saying, the planet's going to survive. The oceans are going to survive. The forests are going to survive. It's really about, can we save ourselves or not? And I just saw that and I'm thinking, what the hell are you saying? This is someone who's considered to be one of the top environmentalists in the world. And he's saying, we don't have to worry about the forest or the oceans. I mean, that just betrays a complete lack of empathy, empathy and connection to the natural world. I don't know how you could possibly say that when we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction and it's being caused by industrial culture, it's being caused by the same institutions, the same economies, the same systems, the same raw materials, the same extractive mindset that is being used for these renewable energy technologies. Yeah, that's a really good quote. <laughs> what it just brought to mind for me was, I remember um, watching an environmental documentary and unfortunately, I've, I've watched a, too many environmental documentaries. Um, <laughs> I really don't <laughs> like them most of the time. Um, you know, usually they're pretty good up until the ending and then they give you this horrible list of what mm. they consider solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but but anyways, I was watching this environmental documentary that um, there they had a, a scene where they were showing a forest fire coming through and there was this big, beautiful forest that was, you know, being, being wiped out by this fire. And there was a little um, house, like a cabin in the midst of it. And the caption, read something like, uh, you know, forest fire destroys uh, house. And like the thing that we were supposed to be concerned about in that image was the fact that that building was gonna be right. uh, engulfed by the fire. Mm -hmm. Not the fact that the forest itself was burning and all of the life that lived in that. It was like the concern was for human property, not right. the living world. And I don't know, to me, that kind of exemplified that whole shift that Max was speaking about there in terms of it's all about us. It's all about right. humans and it's, right. it's shifted completely off of any concern for the natural world. Right. And this idea that, you know, the earth is going to survive. Well, if humans don't survive, if we're on that path, hypothetically, then that's then whales aren't going to survive. There are going to be a lot of things that we're going to take down with us. You know, so it's not just about uh, us. Yeah, absolutely. No, there are so many who will be driven extinct and, and who will have to suffer from the consequences of what we're doing uh, long before we are feeling the effects of it ourselves. And my primary concern is for them. So there's this question as to whether um, nature, whether na other beings exist for our convenience and our amusement. Uh, and if we lose them, then we've lost something that we valued for our 
amusement or our convenience or our well-being. And the, but there's a question, do the, don't they have an independent right to exist, an independent right to live in dignity? Yeah, and I mean, I'm in that camp for sure of, of um, thinking that non-humans are, you know, every bit as uh, worthy of, of their existence and, and that they should have the same rights to, um, I don't know if rights is the right word. Okay, I'm gonna phrase this better. <laughs> I, I, I think I, rights is a good word. I think, okay. um, you know, non-humans are every bit as sentient. I mean, I'm, I'm a person who thinks that plants are sentient, you know, yeah, and, and, you know, I've, everything yeah. I've read about that, um, yeah. I, I treat plants very differently than most people in this culture treat them. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so I, I see non-human beings as being equal and, and every bit as deserving of of life and their lives are just as valuable to them as, as ours are to us. And um, yeah, I, human supremacy is a huge part of the problem. The idea that, that we're the only ones that matter or that the natural world exists for humans to exploit. I don't know how people can think that because <laughs> yeah. I've never thought that, like it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, when you meet a fish or a dog or, a, you know, an insect or any non-human, like you, you can see their personalities, you can see their intelligence, you can see like they're not that different from us. Mm -hmm. And I think non-humans are, you know, vastly more intelligent than we are because they're all living here and not destroying the place. And, mm -hmm. and somehow we've messed it all up for everybody. Um, yeah, I like uh, Paul Watson's definition of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability of a species to live in harmony with its environment, hmm. something like that. Um, yeah. yeah. You mentioned human supremacy. Do you care to connect that with uh, white supremacy or male supremacy? I, I saw you on another podcast and the topic came up as to whether there's an intersection between environmentalism and feminism. And of, of course there is, but do you care to comment on that? Sure, yeah, um, it's all the same kind of um, mental process, I think, that goes into supremacy. Um, because if you can justify it, like, that, that others exist to serve you, um, people, people benefit tangibly from that, you know? Um, so the, it's the same kind of, like, entitlement to exploitation that goes into um, the exploitation of women or the exploitation of nature or exploitation of different people, different cultures. Uh, let's make sure we uh, give people a, a, a sense of what we can do uh, with this information. We want to talk about, you know, what are the solutions and what can people, what actions can people take? Not least of all, how can people follow you and uh, people can give to Bright Green Lies on the website, brightgreenlies.com slash donate, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so what can people do? Um, you know, I'm a big believer in having people uh, dedicate themselves fully to this. You know, I think the problems that we're facing are so large 
it's not something that the solution is to make a little tweak to your lifestyle and then just keep going everything else as normal. Um, for me, when I found out about this, it completely changed uh, the path that I was on and everything became about doing something about this because if we don't have a livable planet, nothing else really matters. And I hope we have more people thinking about that. And I understand not everybody can spend all of their time on stuff like this, but I know a lot of people who, um, you know, have a job and also do volunteer work on the side and getting involved in, in an organization, I think is a really good thing. And a lot of the big organizations are, uh, you know, very co-opted by industry and promoting terrible things. But some of, there are some really great, like smaller scale organizations, grassroots organizations, local ones, if you can find um, some that have good values. Um, there's always a need for, for people or, you know, if you've got your own ideas or oftentimes I tell people, like, if there's a skill or something that you're, you're passionate about, something that you're good at, um, usually there's a way to use that in service of the natural world. And yeah, we, we need more people um, getting active and organizing it and standing in the way of, of the industries that are threatening to destroy life on the planet. And you and I were talking about uh, some people say, oh, that's depressing, like especially uh, what's happening to the oceans. It's, it's, it, it's terrible and it's so far away and like that's depressing. It's like if it, it de that's depressing is what you say when you're preparing to not do anything or you're preparing to escape, put it out of your mind. But, you know, you and I agree that when you're involved with something important, it, it gives you energy terrible stuff going on this is urgent that we stop so it kind of gives you energy mm -hmm. yeah i totally agree um i would say like i'm motivated most by the scale of the problem and the more horrible thing that i hear about the more inspired and like uh energized i am to do something about it um that's that's always how it's worked for me um and I know a lot of people, like the biggest criticism that I ever got for Sea of Life was people would say it's depressing. But then it's exactly like you said, like those were always people who were not planning on doing anything about it. So if you're not going to do anything, then yeah, I guess it's depressing. Mm -hmm. But like the answer is you have to take action on it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, yeah, you have no choice but to just go cry, I guess. Mm -hmm. Another thing I would say is and I'm going to ask you for your contact information and how to follow you on social media. But, you know, if you're aware, then you can stop being part of the problem. You know, awareness of a problem is half the solution. So if you can at least, uh, you know, not promote, not push us down, not help push us down the wrong road, then that is a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Julia Barnes, movie maker, uh, maker of Bright Green Lies and Sea of Life. Uh, how do people uh, keep in contact with you and follow you on social media? Um, so on social media, on um, Facebook and Instagram, there are pages for Bright Green Lies and Sea of Life. And I think if you search up either of those, then you can find them pretty easily. Um, the website for Sea of Life is seaoflifemovie.com and the website for Bright Green Lies is brightgreenlives.com. So if you go to either of those, you can find links and how to watch the movies. Um, on minutes, and it's just um, a good thing to bring people up to speed on the issue of deep sea mining. Um, 
So those would all be good things for people to check out. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Julia Barnes, writer, director, and producer of the movie Bright Green Lies. Bright Green Lies, the movie, is based on the book by the same name by uh, Lier Keith, Derek Jensen, and Max Wilbert. Between the two of them, the book and the movie, here's the best information about what is really going on with so-called clean and renewable energy. I have been a climate reporter for four years. I have produced 346 episodes of The Climate Report. I have read all the Green New Deals. I have read Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, and George Monbiot. I have read the local clean and renewable energy resolutions of uh, Minneapolis, Louisville, Des Moines, and Durham. And I can tell you that the single best source of information about what is really going on with renewable energy, so-called renewable energy, is Bright Green Lies. I hope you will read the book, listen to the audiobook if that's your thing, and see the movie. I've read the book, I've listened to the audiobook, I've seen the movie twice, I can tell you that they're all excellent. Thank you. If you read the book Bright Green Lies, it has a chapter called The Solar Lie, Part 1, The Solar Lie, Part 2, The Wind Lie, The Lie of Green Energy Storage, Efficiency, Recycling, The Green City Lie, The Green Grid Lie, and The Hydropower Lie. It is very well researched, very well written. And if you have questions or comments on that, I would love to hear from you, wfmp.louisville at gmail.com.